Hi, it's dating coach Chris Luna from Craft Charisma. Welcome to the Craft Charisma podcast, our free audio coaching program where we interview the top experts in the world at helping you become the man you've always wanted to be. My guest today is Alex Hutchinson. Alex is a national magazine award-winning journalist who writes about the science of endurance for runners world and outside and frequently contributes to other publications such as the New York Times and the New Yorker. He is the author of several books, including Endure, Mind, Body, and the Curiously Elastic Limits of Human Performance. Alex, can you tell me a little bit about your background and how you got interested in the science of fitness and endurance? Yeah, sure. I mean, I guess I I would describe my current state as I'm kind of a science of endurance journalist, which is a very narrow job description uh, that I've kind of created for myself, I would say. But that, that that background comes from from two different or that that current status comes from two two elements of my background. One is that I've been a runner since high school, um, a, a distance runner. I ran track and cross country in high school and then through university and competed for the Canadian national team for about a decade in uh, cross country running and, and track running. I was a, a miler, so running sort of four minute races. And I still, you know, I'm, I'm in my early 40s now. I still run pretty, you know, pretty much every day. So that's that's always been a big element of my of my life is is running, uh, competing, pushing my limits, uh, things like that. And uh, and the other the other half of the background is that uh, I started out as a physicist. Actually, I I, um, I studied physics in university, then I did a PhD uh, in physics. And actually, my first job was as a, a postdoctoral researcher with the National Security Agency. Um, and I did that for a few years, and it it, it was interesting, but um, eventually I decided it was, it wasn't that interesting and it was, it was really hard. And I decided I, I actually kind of wanted to write. So in, in my late twenties, I, I went back to school, did a journalism degree and eventually started writing as a freelancer and gravitated to, to sort of putting those two elements in my background together, the, the endurance sports and competitive side and the, the science side and started writing about the science of endurance. What were some of the the biggest things that you've learned through the process of being a journalist and and writing around these subjects. Well, one of the so the really interesting thing for me is is writing about something that I'd already spent a decade kind of living or or a decade or more living as a as a as a runner. So, um, there are topics I write about as a journalist that I've that I have no personal experience about, and that's that's very interesting and and it's intellectually satisfying to you know I I in my book I really have a half a chapter on free diving and I, you know, I've basically never been deeper than my bathtub. So I, I really don't know. I don't know anything about free diving, but it was absolutely, you know, mind blowing to, to, to read about these people who, uh, can hold their breath for 11 minutes. You know, like that, that's, that's just stupefying. Uh, but it's very different for me writing about the sort of the, the more running related aspects of endurance or the, or the sort of pure pushing your limits, because that is something that I had spent so long experiencing. So if, if, if you run as whatever, you know, 20 million Americans do, uh, you have personal experience of trying to push your limits of, of, of the, of, of exploring the difference between when it feels like you have to stop and when you really, really have to stop or slow down or whatever the case may be. So I'd already spent a long time sort of trying to understand that. And so it was really fascinating for me to then, in a sense, after my serious competitive career was done to say, okay, let's talk to the scientists. Let's find out what we actually know about those feelings that I was having. And what was fascinating to me is that 
the the science. I, I always thought the science of endurance was sort of a the body is a machine, and if we understand the parts, then we'll understand the limits of endurance. And you know, you can measure the your VO two max and and various other sort of parameters of your body and understand what you're capable of. Um, but what it turned out is is and that and that's kind of what was going on in the 20th century. But in the last 10 or 20 years, the science of endurance it really has zeroed in on the brain and trying to understand the mysteries of endurance to try to understand why one day you're capable of one thing and you know two weeks later you're somehow capable of more or, or capable of less uh, you know depending on the circumstances even though your body hasn't really changed and so trying to understand how your mindset how things like confidence and and self-belief can alter what seems like your your purely physical limits so it was you know anyone who's run has kind of experienced this this sort of the fact that it's not just you know what's your vo2 max well that's how fast you can run a marathon but to see that there was some science behind it was really fascinating to me yeah it's, it's awesome and it made me i mean as you said that i just i thought about like how there's so many different things well first I'm I'm glad that you sort of rephrased that question because that, that was actually the question that I was sort of more interested in is like the difference between doing something right and and doing it as persistently uh, and with as much attention as you have like the endurance sports and then going back and studying it and sort of understanding like what were the discoveries that you went through that process so um, I think it's really I'm really glad that you you tuned into that. Um, well, let me jump in and actually say there's a, a second layer of difference, which is I, I spent basically 10 years on this book uh, and, and talking to scientists. And so in, in a sense, I, I can sort of pat myself on the back and, and think that I know everything about the science of endurance. But there's another layer of difference between thinking, you know, a lot and then going back and doing it. And I, you know, I still compete. I, I was running some cross country races this fall. And it's like uh, I, I was actually I, I, I was running the national Canadian National Masters Cross Country Championships uh, last weekend, and I had this epic battle with with a, a guy who I didn't know. Uh, we were running back and forth for like the whole race, and uh, he beat me. and And afterwards, we were chatting, you know, and he he knew who I was because he'd read my book and stuff. And so he said, "Oh, I was, you know, we were running this race, and I was figuring." man, this guy probably knows everything about how to pace himself perfectly and push himself. And so he, he figured he was in trouble because he was running against a guy who literally wrote the book about <laughs> limits of endurance. And I was like, yeah, I mean, I wish that was the case. But there again, there's a difference between doing something and studying it or understanding it. And um, I, I think I think I've taken some important lessons, which hopefully we can get into from from looking at the science of it. But ultimately, Doing it is still a different thing. Just just because I just because you kind of know here's what it takes. Man, getting out there and, and pushing to your limits is still a task that uh, th there's no there's no like shortcuts to it. It doesn't become easy just because you know how to do it. It's just you you know the way, but it's still a hard road to get to the to the the limits of of what you're capable of. I think it's an absolutely awesome point, right? This this gap between application and and theory, and that it can move both ways right we can apply something and then go back and learn around about theory and optimize ourselves or we can sort of theorize and research something and it's through the process of application that we sort of we can optimize as well and so i think that's a really cool point i mean you've, you mentioned the book a few times now um where, where did you get the idea for for endure that's an interesting question it, 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 
I mean, as so as a journalist, you, you I mean, uh, to be to, to be totally honest with you, you, you write a lot for newspapers and magazines, and someone else is in control of what you're writing, and you're 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 uh, limited in by space and and things like that. And so I think a lot of journalists sort of spend a lot of time thinking, oh man, I would just like to write a book where I'm I'm the boss and I can write as much as I want and tell all my you know boring anecdotes and so on without some editor cutting them out. Um, so I was, I was looking for an idea for a book and it was, when I started writing about the science of endurance, it was basically coming across the research of a guy named Tim Noakes, who's an extremely influential and extremely controversial sports scientist from South Africa, uh, that he had proposed this idea that, that exercise is fundamentally limited by the brain rather than the body. He called it the central governor model. And he proposed that in the late nineties, but I came across it probably around 2006 and when I saw that, and it just the and the idea is still controversial, but but the 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 basic concept clicked so magically with my experience of you know running where one day you're capable of something and when the other another day you're capable of something else, or you know you you turn the corner and see at the finish line or see a friend, and all of a sudden you're, you find you're able to sprint even though you thought you were dead. So that that seemed so interesting and intriguing to me that I was like, I've got to write a book, uh, and. Then the road to to uh, the, you know this is my topic this is the this is the topic I was born to write about but then then sort of trying to understand enough trying to and the more I dug into the topic the more I realized well it's not quite as simple as as I thought or as Tim Noakes thought uh, there's more nuance here wait a second maybe I need to find out more maybe I need to talk to other people and so it kept kind of dragging on until after sort of eight years or so it's like well oh yeah this is the nature of science at the frontier where where we don't know the answers it just keeps going there's no like oh now we understand everything and i can write my book so i, I finally realized i had to just uh write what we knew so far write what i knew so far and and not wait for the the perfect moment to understand everything about human limits because we don't and i and i should you know for 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 anyone who, who who does read my book i don't want to promise that you'll get to the end and say now i know everything because uh yeah that's not the way it works I have a couple of questions. One is, yeah, what were some of the most surprising and important things that you learned during the research and writing process? And then the second, I feel like I should ask this at the end, but like where is sort of the, the knowledge still emerging? Yeah, okay. So to, the, the first one, surprising stuff. So again, going back to this idea that there, there's a lot of stuff that was surprising scientifically to me, but totally familiar or predictable from experience so like one one of the sort of funnier studies that that, that i came across was uh someone used subliminal messages to change to, to alter endurance so had cyclists doing an endurance test and flashing smiling faces or frowning faces on the wall in front of them but flashing them just for 16 milliseconds at a time so shorter than a blink you, you don't even know that there's faces on the wall and the cyclists actually lasted 12 percent longer in their endurance test when they were shown smiling faces rather than frowning faces so from a like rational scientific perspective that that's like it's it's crazy that that could could make a difference and the idea here is that you, you subtle alterations in your mood change your answer to the question can i keep going for another 10 seconds you're, you're 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 making the judgment not because your legs are about to fall off but because your brain is is sort of monitoring how do my legs feel how's my how fast is my heart beating how hard am i breathing and and it's it's trying to answer that question can i keep going and if you feel a little better about yourself uh then the answer is more likely to be yes so scientifically i was i was blown away that 
that 16 milliseconds of a smiling face can alter your performance by 12%. Uh, although then experientially, the sort of understanding the role of mindset in 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 performing your best, it's like, oh yeah, that makes sense. You know, if you're feeling better, if you're feeling confident about yourself, you're able to push harder. So there is the sort of half of me was was surprised and 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 half of me wasn't. Um, so that that's that's a there were a lot of little moments like that where it's like I can't believe that actually works. I can't believe electric brain stimulation you can alter your perception of effort and change your endurance. But it sort of makes sense to me again in in believing that the brain is is really a crucial element of performance. And and this is the single most surprising thing I would say is what I mentioned before. For, for me, the thing that was like I had no idea was was getting into the free diving stuff because I was trying to understand what really limits us and. And, you know, there's, when you go for a run or something, you think, oh, well, I'm breathing really hard, I'm out of oxygen, or my legs are really hurting. And so one by one, I was trying to track down the ultimate limits of these various physiological factors. And so one of them was oxygen. It's like, are you really out, running out of oxygen when you go for a run and you're breathing really hard? So then it's like, well, what happens if you really run out of oxygen? And so that, that took me to the free divers. And it's like, okay, how long can these guys go without oxygen? How do they learn to do it? What's the difference? And you realize, oh, what feels like running out of oxygen is actually just carbon dioxide levels triggering some alarms in your body. And if you learn to trigger to, to ignore those alarms, you can hold your breath in, in some for some people by for eight minutes or ten minutes or eleven minutes. So that that kind of rearranged my understanding of what it means to be out of oxygen or or what breathing hard means. It's like that. Yeah, that's that's just a a warning system. That's a that's a yellow light, not a red light. Was that something once you learned it that you could apply to your own life or was it still? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know because I do not want to uh, dive 300 feet under the ocean on a single breath. Yeah, no. So free diving is not something I've tried. And in fact, I haven't even tried the sort of hyperventilating and, and ho holding my breath. I, that To me, that's... Um, okay, I admit I'm a little bit curious but it, uh, uh, what I could do, but it's also like... It sounds extremely unpleasant, uh, and yeah. So I, I don't have at this point in my life. I, I right now I don't have a sort of huge itch to scratch in terms of trying trying to hold my breath. Sort of like how many times can I bang my head against a wall before I pass out? It's like it's intellectually interesting, but I actually don't want to find out in practice. Um, so that that's not one that I that I applied, but it does kind of except in a, in an indirect indirect way, right? Like so if I'm if I'm out running and I'm starting to feel like I'm breathing heavily, you know, I, I know intellectually now that I, don't worry, I'm not running out of oxygen. I'm not like starving my tissues of, of oxygen or anything like that. that. That was sort of where I was going with that. Um, like would it, not whether or not you do free diving, but whether or not it would, like it's allowed you to push your body harder, like when you, when you do something like running. But it also brought up, I mean, as you were sort of responding to the question, it brought up something else. You mentioned this idea of hyperventilation um, and then free diving. Was that part of the process for free divers to hyperventilate before they dive? Yeah, they have a they have a fairly specific protocol. You have to be careful with hyperventilation because if you if you hyperventilate too much, then uh, you know you you can pass out. So they have, but they do take the the goal is is maybe not full hyperventilation, but some deep breaths. Which what that does, it's not that you're taking in oxygen that stays there. It's that you're you're blowing off the carbon dioxide that's already in your system. So you want since the carbon dioxide is pretty unpleasant, it's it's the sort of warning signal that tries to make you breathe. You if you're really trying to push your your breath holding, you want to get that uh, relatively low before you start. 
but uh yeah it's so so yeah if, i mean in terms of simple hacks if you're trying to impress your friends at a party um you know the, the very simplest way of of uh holding your breath for a long time is to to do a bunch of deep breathing first um but you, you may not impress them if you pass out so so <laughs> it's it's, uh, it's, it's uh, a the, the whole breath holding stuff is is uh I, you know you know it it ties into another question that i sort of wrestled with and that that a lot of people are ask about which is like okay if your brain's trying to hold you back then you know protect you from going all the way to, you, to the true limits of your endurance maybe that's a pretty you know for a good reason and and learning to push past your limits is going to be dangerous and my my response to that is again based on the the breath holding it's like if you look at so I talked I talked I had a chance to talk to a guy named Brandon Hendrickson who set the American record for breath holding uh, just last year he was like eight minutes and thirty five seconds and I asked him to sort of walk me through the stages of the breath hold and what was interesting is so he held his breath for eight minutes and thirty five seconds but what they call the struggle phase for him started shortly after four minutes so that's the point at which your body actually thinks you're out of oxygen or your brain thinks you're out of oxygen so it's trying to force you to breathe and and your your breathing muscles start to contract involuntarily and so for most of us that's that's the end of the game it's like when your breathing muscles are spasming and you you breathe but these guys have learned to just sort of let the breathing muscles spasm without opening their mouths and to me, it was really interesting to to think that okay, four and a half minutes or something is where he his brain thought he had to breathe, but he kept going to eight and a half minutes. So there's like a big safety margin between your perceived limits and your actual limits, and so, and you know you can't sort of extrapolate that breath holding is exactly the same as running a marathon on a hot day or whatever, but to me there are pretty big safety limits and what what we're talking about here is not so much learning to push past your limits but learning to push a little bit closer to your limits and in most cases there are still there is still a pretty big safety margin no matter how tough you are and there are a few there are a few cases where uh maybe your your safety your your safety mechanisms might not work as well and actually you know running marathons in very hot days like sort of uh you know 90 degrees uh, that and humid, that kind of thing. There, your safety mechanisms aren't as good, and and that's where you sometimes see people run into problems with like heat stroke, and breath holding. Extreme breath holding is another one where, if you're really well trained and well motivated, you, you can potentially do yourself some some damage by by uh, if repeatedly holding your breath to the point where you really are short on oxygen. Um, 99.9999999% of us will never actually be capable of holding our breaths long enough to, to to make it dangerous, but it's, it's still something that I'm a, a little cautious of. So I'm, I, I don't want to be too glib about saying, hey, everyone, go out there and hyperventilate and, you know, put your face in a bathtub and see what happens. <laughs> yeah, I'm not, I'm not suggesting people do that, but I, I mean, the reason why I asked the question was because I had seen a, a Wim Hof video. Yeah. And, and uh, I mean, that guy is, one of his criticisms is a few people have died trying to um, trying to use his approach, but he's not doing deep sea diving. He's putting himself into really cold situations and claiming that it heats up the body. I mean, something's working. He's set some world records, but I like that was sort of what triggered that question. And uh, yeah, exactly. Like, so I, I mean, and same. Like Wim Hof's a very interesting guy, and obviously a, a, a physiological marvel. Um, and it's like he does amazing things, things that no one would think is possible. Uh, how much of the, is that is because he's a he's a freak, and how much of that is because of his techniques? Well, he's trained a lot of other people to do interesting things too. So he's obviously got something going on. But whether his explanation of what he thinks he's doing 
is is the same as what's actually going on when what you know uh when he trains other people to try and do these things is is an interesting question and uh, yeah i i uh yeah i don't want to be <laughs> i don't want to follow that road of like yeah you can put your face under ice water and and uh that goes back to what we were talking about at the very beginning of this conversation which is like this difference between research and application Right, he's like applying things, and people are gonna have to go back and sort of are, are trying to go back and understand what the hell is happening with him. Is he a freak, or is this like, is there something specific, and does he really understand what he's doing? Yeah, and I think that's a huge question. That's one of my a, a great quote from David Epstein, who's uh, the sport the journalist who wrote the uh, the sports gene a few years ago. Uh, one, you know, in talking about extreme or extraordinary athletic feats, he said, you know, just because you're a bird doesn't mean you're an ornithologist. Uh, and you know, if you if you want to know how you know flight works, no one is going to be able to tell you how flight works like a bird. A bird knows how or how flight feels like a bird. But if you want to understand like advanced aerodynamics, the bird is not necessarily going to know what makes his flight so amazing. And I, I don't mean to sound that 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 may come off sounding a little bit obnoxious, like I like thinking that I know better than than Wim Hof or something, which I don't necessarily. But just doing something as we as like you said as we started out this conversation saying doing something is not necessarily the same as understanding it and so there there's different different forms of knowledge and they're both you know experiential and and analytical knowledge are both useful uh but we we need to understand that they're they're also different and it's it, i think it's useful to try and draw from both bodies i i think that's an absolutely awesome point and the other thing that kind of came up was i was thinking about as you're talking about limits i was thinking about and this is sort of like a almost like a stereotypical example um but like the four minute mile thing right so like this idea that there, it's impossible to run a, a four minute mile until people did it and um, people thought it was a limit of their their body and for me like if right now if somebody asked me to run an eight minute mile it'd be like the limit of my body right so like um but i, I mean i go out and i run eight miles two or three four times a week and I had to work up to that. But if it was a few months ago, I, earlier this year, I, like uh, I wouldn't have been able to do that. So like we do as human beings have the capacity to grow and improve. And and so like this idea that uh, we can continue to, that we can continue to grow and improve and what our limit is today um, might not be our limit tomorrow. And, and we can apply sort of new strategies. But a lot of the stuff that you're talking about is like literally that, sort of like the absolute limit of the best people in the world today. So, so okay, a bunch of things there. First of all, I think the four-minute mile is an absolutely awesome example uh, because it, it gets used it gets used and abused by, by different people to illustrate different things. Uh, and if you, so if you look closely at what happened when the four-minute mile was broken, and I, I went back, you know, when I was researching my book and just sort of looked at some of the, the hype around it, and I found some self-help books saying things like, you know, it's amazing. Barriers are all in your mind. You know, once the first man broke four minutes for a mile, uh, you know, 300 people broke the four minute mile the next year. And it's like, this isn't a book that's published. And I'm like, but that's just not true. One person broke it within a year of a mile uh, of, of the, you know, there was one person and <laughs> one other person broke it the next year. Uh, and then I think three or four the next year. Now, so it's not 300 people. It's not like these barriers are all in your head. But at the same time, it's amazing that after thousands of years of no one running a four-minute mile, one guy does it, and then six weeks later, someone else does it. And then the next year, you know, three or four people do it. And 
so it, it it really was something where once the door was open, a, a lot of people, pe- an increasing number of people, were able to follow through. Follow through, and I think we're 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 gonna the analog today is the two hour marathon, which the you know the world record which was set uh, in September of this year was uh, is is two oh one thirty nine. So we're at that point where it's like once someone's run two oh one, it's very hard to say no, it's impossible to run a two hour marathon, but. As someone who's been reporting on this for a few years, I can I can tell you that three or four years ago, if you'd surveyed the leading running experts in the world, they would have said, "Yeah, two hours is impossible for humans, and two hundred one is not going to happen for a century." Like, um, th- so things can change very quickly, and once they change, uh, the it, it changes our under our, our sort of. It changes everyone's understanding of what's possible, and so the the, the example that I really like is. And, and that gets to, sorry, I'm kind of going in circles here, but this is awesome. Keep going. The thing I really wanted to respond to, to you was the last thing you said, which is that what I'm talking about is the ultimate limits of performance. And, and I, and I want to push back against that and say, no, I, I'm talking about what's really relevant here is each of us pushing, pushing our own limits because the ultimate limit, if you want to know what are the ultimate limits of performance, that's 99.9% physical and, and 0.1% mental or whatever. I'm, I'm making up numbers there, but uh, you know, the reason I can't run a two hour marathon has nothing to do with how tough I am. Uh, it, it, you know, and everything to do with my oxygen carrying capacity and my muscle fibers and things like that. Um, but so now if you're going to run a sub two hour marathon, it's going to take someone with extraordinary mental toughness, but the, they already have to have the physical tools. So the, the mental stuff is not going to turn me into a two hour marathon, but the mental stuff, a two hour, two hour marathoner, but the mental stuff is going to determine whether I can go faster than I went last week or whether I can go a little bit faster than, than what I thought was capable. And so to me, the, the great sort of historical example of that is if you compare humans to like horses and dogs, because humans have been racing for a long time. Horses and dogs have also been racing for a long time. And there's a ton of money in horse racing and dog racing. So everything we know about physiology and training and all this sorts of all these, these sorts of things that are usually used to explain why people world records keep getting broken that stuff is applied to horses and dogs too but if you look at historical records for major horse races that have been going on for for you know a century or, or in some cases several centuries horses and dogs were getting faster just like humans for a long long time until about the 1950s then things started to plateau and you know, th- there's individual exceptions, but basically the the fastest horses and dogs now aren't faster than the fastest horses and dogs were in the 1950s. The, you know, the, the, the record for the Kentucky Derby is still from, I think it's 1973, Secretariat. Um, so what's the difference between, ho- why, but we, and yet human records, even though every every five years, I guarantee you'll, you'll read a record, uh, an article saying we're approaching the end of world records. Humans aren't going to get any faster. We've maxed out everything. But the fact is, world records in pretty much every event that ha- hasn't been totally skewed by doping uh, continue to get faster and, or higher or stronger. And the difference to me between a horse and a human is that a human can race against not just his competitors on that day, but can race against his his previous best self and, and what anyone else has ever done in history. So any as a, I was a miler, so when I was running... Uh, you know, 1500 or, or, or mile races, I was fully aware of what Roger Bannister did 50 years ago. And my sense was if Roger Bannister ran a four minute mile, you know, in, in the 1950s, there's a pretty good chance that I can too. You know, I, 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 so 
so I, I'm I'm racing against history. The horse, all the horse can do, is run against his the, in that exact moment. So there's another, uh, you know, Secretariat's Kentucky Derby record is like 159 point something. There's one other horse I think uh, that has run sub two uh, on the uh, the Kentucky Derby, and and won by a bunch. And so maybe that horse could have beaten Secretariat if they'd been racing against each other. But that horse couldn't conceptualize that Secretariat had run a little bit faster. All the horse could do was run in that moment. So to me, the knowledge of what you're capable of one and what other people are capable of is is a really crucial component of you want to ask what your limits are. Fundamentally, what we're doing when we ask what our limits are is saying, what have I done before and can I do a little bit more? So you're always anchored by what you've done before. And if someone else or if you are able to, you know, either imagine being a little bit better, believe that you can be better or see someone else doing a little bit better, then you change your concept of what you're aiming for. And and the evidence of world records suggests that all of us are capable of sort of inching forward based on what we know we're capable of or what we know others are capable of. I, I think it's an absolutely awesome point. The other thing that comes up, and I want your thoughts on this, is as a human being or as human beings in mass, like we can optimize like we can go through this sort of internal optimization, right? Where I'm going to try changing the amount of my calorie intake, or I'm going to try to change this or that based on the way I feel. And like a horse can't really do that for themselves. We have to do that for the horse. Yeah. Or, and, and we're not in the same way a horse knows right. if it's full, but do you, you see where I'm going with this? Yeah. And so I think what's, what's interesting is so, because we're because rich people own horses and want to win more money, everything that can be optimized for the horse is optimized. But the horse doesn't know that. The horse doesn't step to the line thinking, "There's nobody better prepared than me today. I've got everything. I've done everything. I've you know crossed every T and dotted every I." So the horse doesn't gain any mental edge from all the the physiology that has gone into the uh, to its training. Whereas the when we're humans and we go through that self-optimization process, we get faster. Maybe the calories that you know the change in calorie intake intake is actually helping us. It's giving us more fuel or, or optimizing our body composition or whatever. But we also get that feeling of yeah, I'm doing all these things that are making me better, and therefore I sh- I expect to be better, and I'm going to set my sights higher. Uh, you know, whether this is in a personal or a business context or an athletic context, the the process of self-optimization. Uh, creates confidence that generates results above and beyond whatever that optimization has done. That sort of leads me to the next question, and you've you've already began to touch on it, but just the connection between mind and muscle. Yeah, that's a <laughs> that's that's a very big question. So, um, and it's, it's it's fundamentally the question that I've been wrestling with for a decade. And 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 if if I had a super easy answer, I would I would my book would have been really short. Um, uh, so one important thing to say I, I think is that you can't separate them, right? Like mind mind and muscle are intertwined. And whenever we talk about you know what was it that limited limited me? Did, did were my muscles maxed out, or was it my mind that didn't want to go any farther? Well. There, there's never, it's never just one or the other. And, and, and you know, I don't, I, I don't want to get too deep into the physiology, but there's all these uh, signals going back and forth so that even if you just, if you damage your muscles, like let's say by running hard for a marathon so that you're getting a bunch of damage in your leg muscles, that's going to, there's all these inhibitory signals that go up through your spinal cord that 
prevent your brain, that basically block the signal from your brain. So your brain is still saying, contract, 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 you know, keep, keep running. But the message, your, your spinal cord is, is kind of uh, losing some of that message so that all, instead of, your muscles don't hear quite as powerful a message to contract. So is that muscle fatigue or is that brain fatigue? Well, it's caused by damage in the muscles, but it's but the outcome is that the brain signal is no longer or the brain is no longer demanding as as much of a as powerful a contraction from your muscles. So it's both. It, it's both and it's neither. It's, so our our limits are always the consequence of uh, mind and muscle together. But sometimes it's more one than the other. And 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 I I would say the the general rule of thumb the, or the general sort of pattern that across all sorts of different you know situations and contexts and, and limitations is that almost all the limits that feel physical to us that feel like well i reached the point where my legs didn't work or my arm could not lift another uh you know repetition or whatever those are almost always controlled or at least influenced by the brain you're you're almost never at the point where your muscles literally can't contract anymore and, th and this is something people have been studying for decades and decades one of my one of my favorite studies was uh is from the 19 late 1950s uh, or i guess early 1960s they published it uh they were trying to understand the limits of of muscle versus the brain you know exactly this question and they had people doing maximum voluntary contractions of their arms uh you know once every minute and they had them doing a series of them and they're going you're supposed to go all out this is everything you can do don't hold anything back and then before one of the contractions, one of the experimenters actually snuck up behind the, the volunteer and fired a gun in their ear, basically scared the crap out of them. And all of a sudden their maximum strength goes up by, you know, it was, I can't remember, it was like 10% or 8% or something like that. So, you know, an illustration that you're supposed to be going as hard as you can, that this is just what can your muscles do? But you trigger that flight, fight or flight response and all of a sudden you have more there. So I think... So I, I spent a I, I gave you a long preamble and caveat saying, oh, you can never say it's one or the other. They're all interconnected. But basically what I'm saying is the ultimate shot caller is your brain. Dating coach Chris Thoney here. This is the perfect time to take a quick break to talk to you about three simple things that you can do to dramatically change your life. First, listen to this entire podcast and then subscribe through SoundCloud, iTunes, or Stitcher. This way, you'll immediately be notified every time we share a new release. If you listen and apply the ideas we discuss on these podcasts, it will change your life forever. Second, go to craftchristmas.com, create an account, and become a member of our community. There you can read articles, listen to podcasts, watch videos, ask us questions, and document your journey in our forums. Great men don't become great on their own. All great men are members of a community, and Craft Charisma is your community. Finally, if you're serious, and I know that you are, about making massive changes to your life as quickly as possible, check out our live coaching programs on our website. Craft Charisma live programs are the fastest way to improve your dating and social life. And who knows? Attend our live programs, let us get to know you, and you may end up as a member of the Craft Charisma team. Again, thank you for listening. Now back to the podcast. Maybe you can expand a little bit because like you talked about the fight or flight um, response, right? How 
um, when we're in fear, like we, I think what you're saying is like when we're in fight or flight or we we're scared, that can cause our brain neurochemistry to uh, to release things that cause us to be more vigilant or stronger or run a little bit harder or, or get a little dose of additional sort of energy. That's essentially what you're saying, right? And, wh- and what you're saying is that when we reach the limit, what we reach what we think is our limit, um, oftentimes our brain can go a little further. Is that what you're saying or are you saying something yeah. else? No, that, that's exactly what I'm saying. And the, the fight or flight response is something that we're all kind of familiar with, I think. So I use that as an example, but it's not the only example. And so it, it's just to illustrate the idea that y- you may, your experience or your feeling may be that you've reached an absolute physical limit and you cannot take another step. Um, fight or flight is one way that you will discover, you, you know, you're, you're you're at mile 20 of a marathon, you're like, I'm going to drop out. And then, you know, a, a lion jumps out from behind a tree and starts chasing you. You're going to discover that actually you can go another step and you're going to try and sprint. But there, there are other, that that's the illustration that there's more in the tank. So then the question is, are there ways of pushing myself? Are there other, are there ways I can learn to squeeze more out of the lemon? Uh, in, without having a lion chase me or without having some some jerk fire a gun in my ear from behind uh, and and the answer is yes it's 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 not as easiness or it's not as straightforward as the fight or flight response but there are other ways more subtle subtle things like uh, basically mindset and self-conscious I've said that, I've said that word a few times in the last few minutes so let me let me just expand on that um, one of the if we're talking about actual practical ideas for how do you, how do you change your performance probably the single most useful thing that i came across in my research is is uh motivational self-talk which is a very old idea and a very sort of tacky and cliched idea uh basically the idea is you know if you're running a marathon and you're telling yourself oh this sucks i hate this sport why you know i'm doomed this is so hard i'm going to drop out then that's that's kind of the equivalent of the the sort of subliminal frowning face that I was mentioning earlier. It it affects how you're you're asking yourself the question, can I keep going, based on all this feedback from your body, but you're doing it in the context of feeling, oh, this is crap, I hate this, this sucks. You're going to decide, no, I can't keep going, I'm going to quit. And if you can alter your, your your internal monologue to something more along the lines of, I'm ready for this, I've pushed for this, this is what I'm here for, then you're more likely to interpret the exact same signals from your body in a way in a more positive way and say, yeah, I can, I can do this. I can keep going. I can, I can sustain my pace for a little bit longer. So again, this is an idea that's been out there for a long time. This sort of motivational self-talk is something that sports psychologists and other sort of high performance, uh, you know, coaches have, have talked about for a long time. I always found it so cheesy that I didn't take it seriously. Like it just sounded like a, you know, crap from the, the self-help shelf at the airport. Um, and so we actually had a sport, you know, when I was in college 20, 20 plus years ago, we had a sports psychologist working with the track team who tried to teach us that. And I, and I basically ignored it cause I didn't, I didn't have confidence that it was real, but the, one of the sort of paths that my research over the last 10 years has led me down is to realize that, oh, actually in the last few years, there've been very interesting studies trying to explore and quantify the effects of motivational self-talk. And the fact is what they found is it it alters your perception of effort. It alters how hard you feel a given effort is. So if you're out there cycling at a, a you know at a, a certain pace, and you're saying this is crap, I hate this, this is so hard, then you get then and then someone says how hard how hard are you working right now? You're going to say I'm working at six out of ten. This is really hard. And if you have a more positive mindset, and then someone asks you how hard are you working, 
right now you'll say, oh, four out of 10, five out of 10. You're gonna rate the same effort as easier. And that's important because the moment you quit is gonna be the moment where your effort gets to 10 out of 10. And so if you're rating the effort as easier, you're gonna be able to push harder uh, just, just because you're perceiving the effort as easier. And motivational self-talk or understanding the power of your internal monologue and your mindset uh, is is like the most straightforward way of altering your perception of effort and as a result, allowing yourself to push a little harder, push a little closer to your limits. That's yeah, super cool. It gives sort of the idea. I, I, we interviewed somebody on the podcast who wrote a book on self-talk, uh, but that the idea of that and or even like affirmations just like uh, sort of gives it a different context. Yeah, I mean, so I think a little, I, I suspect I'm not the only one out there who's just pretty skeptical, to be honest. I, I mean, I, I, I definitely agree with you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's like, you can tell me this and it, and it sounds good, but it's like, for me, it's like, show me a graph, show me some data that it works. Otherwise, as far as I'm concerned, I, it's just noise to me. Um, and, and, you know, maybe that's a very bad attitude, but it's just, the, it's the way I'm wired. And so for me, the, the revelation has not been, hey, there's this thing called motivational self-talk. The revelation has been, oh, wait, here's a couple of studies where they've really tested it in a rigorous way with a control group and they've quantified things and they've tried to understand exactly uh, what the effects are, how it worked, how big the effects are. And so now, now I'm listening because there's data, even though you know, the, the others, they're, they're, you'd certainly be justified in saying, well, you idiot, someone was telling you this 20 years ago. You should, you should have listened then. Well, maybe so, but, but uh, you know, better late than never, I guess. Well, yeah, I mean, it's sort of like the, I mean, it goes back to that sort of Wim Hof thing we were talking about earlier um, around the idea, like, this guy's just really good at something, maybe this guy's just really good at something, and somebody else who does great, they just happen to do self-talk, like, um, and, unless we have that sort of external research or, or those external data points, for somebody on the outside, it's hard to, to really understand, is it like, is that really the differentiating factor, or is it just a quirk that this person has that makes, but the truth is they're just special. That that's a hundred percent the 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 major major issue. It's actually like you know going back to your very first question of like what do, what do I do and why do I do it? Um, that's kind of the the fundamental motivating driver behind my career as a sports science journalist. Uh, my you know and I write uh, I guess six articles a month for Outside Magazine and and a couple more for newspapers and stuff. Every one of those articles is based on a peer reviewed study. Not because peer-reviewed studies are the only source of knowledge or their experience isn't worthwhile, but it's just like we are flooded with like athletes who have an explanation for why they're successful. And in, in many cases, they're paid to have that explanation. I mean, that, and that's the nature of the business. But in, in, in a lot of other cases, they're not paid. It's just they're sincerely like, yeah, I'm sure it's because I wear my lucky blue underwear that I am such a great hockey player. And, uh, you know, Michael Jordan, he wore, he wore his like North Carolina shorts under his uniform for, for his entire pro career, um, which I'm, I'm sure he didn't think that was the only reason, but it's like, th these are, these are interesting stories, but, uh, and, and even the more plausible ones, like, you know, it's because I eat this diet or it's because I do this, this kind of exercise that I'm sure that's what makes me good. It's like, you know, maybe that's true. Maybe it's not. And, it, uh, and so I'm interested in saying that's one form of knowledge, but I want I want to focus on on what we can learn from testing these things in a rigorous way to see which ones stand up to, to scrutiny. And again, I just want to you know triply reemphasize: it's not that I think that's the only relevant form of knowledge. We should be looking at lots of forms of knowledge, but I th but we should understand the difference between someone saying, I, "This is what I do. I'm amazing. Therefore, you should do it too," 
and someone saying, I took 100 people and had them do one of two things. And the ones who did option B had a much better outcome. Yeah, I mean, it's a great point, right? Because if, if we sort of run around and try to optimize based on sort of hearsay or um, people's sort of opinions, it's it's really hard to, to optimize anything. Right? You, you certainly have to have a, a filter because yeah. uh, for, for everyone who says you should do X, there's someone else who's going to say the secret to my success is not doing X. Um, and so, you know, it's certainly possible to sort of uh, just you, you find your tribe and you you decide that these are the people I'm going to stick with and we're all going to do this and we're going to be confident that it's the the right thing to do. But uh, and and I should say even you know I, I claim to be you know Mr. Science based, but it's you, you do you 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 fall into habits and people who have similar thinking and and you're it's very easy to dismiss when someone let's say someone like Wim Hof comes along and says I know better than than uh, you know all these fancy pants physiologists. Uh, look, my knee-jerk reaction is to be like, yeah, okay, prove it. But uh, it's it's important to try and stay open to the idea that other people know things and that maybe maybe it'll turn out that there's there's new knowledge because it, it is, it's very easy to sort of d- decide that we already know everything and to stop listening to, to new voices. Where were some places, when you, you talked about new knowledge, right? Where, where were some, oftentimes when there's somebody who comes on the scene and they disrupt the current, perspective on something they are ridiculed or ostracized like people question them um we see this a lot in in the history of science for example where are some of the places where through your research you found new knowledge yeah so first thing i'll say is you know there's that sort of cliche of you know they all laughed at christopher columbus and that sort of thing like the people who have great new ideas everyone laughs and the, the the sort of I can't remember who said it, but the retort that I kind of liked is they also laughed at Bozo the Clown, you know, like, so um, <laughs> j- just because occasionally people saying ridiculous things turn out to be right. Uh, it's it's a mistake to then think, therefore, everyone saying something ridiculous must be right. Um, there, there are a lot of people who are closer to Bozo the Clown than to, to Christopher Columbus. Um, the challenge is recognizing who's who. Well, I was thinking more of somebody like Copernicus. But yeah, that's a great <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure there there were also guys around Copernicus's time who were, who were saying like, oh for uh, sure, <laughs> you know, actually the moon is is you know is made out of you know whatever green cheese and 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 it, and it turns out that they were they were not correct, um, and they were rightfully ridiculed, um, <laughs> but yeah, no, for for me, to be honest, I I would say much to my you know, counter to my expectations, Twitter has turned out to be both a rich source of knowledge for me and a sort of a good reality check or alternative perspective check. So, you know, I, I'm not sort of a natural social media guy, um, but it, as a freelance journalist, it's kind of an occupational um, necessity in a, in a, in a way. And in, in, I, I have to find ways of connecting with, with potential readers. And um, so initially when I joined Twitter, and this is like 10 years ago or whatever, it, I, I viewed it as sort of a broadcast medium where this it was my my way of saying, hey, everybody, if, if you want to check out my latest article, here it is. And it took me a while to realize that, oh, actually, there's a lot of information that I can be getting. Uh, I can be receiving information and I can be following scientists. So initially, then I was like, the next stage two was like, oh, a lot of these scientists whose work I write about, they're on Twitter and I can, fo- I can you know, engage with them. And instead of, you know, always having to set up an interview and spend half an hour on the phone, if I have a quick question, I can just shoot them a message and, and they'll reply, or I can just look at 
and see, hey, look, here's the studies that those four scientists are talking about right now and discussing on Twitter. I bet that's more interesting than I realized. I should go check out that study and maybe write an article about it. So that's that's been a, a, a source of new knowledge. But then sort of it, to, to answer your actual question, it's also been a source of, you know, if I write an article about, you know, carb lo carbo loading for a marathon on Twitter, I'm going to get a bunch of people who are telling me that I'm a, you know, a sheeple who, who doesn't understand that the, the future is ketogenic diets. And, you know, let's say five, six years ago, my first instinct there was to be like, uh, you know, okay, yeah, what, whatever, dude, uh, I, I'm not interested, but that, but ultimately you start to hear from some people who are very reasonable and are trying to explain why they think a ketogenic diet is, is useful. And so then you start to be, Oh, maybe I should look into the research here and, and, uh, and try and understand more. And so in some of those cases where I maybe had preconceived notions of what was right and what was wrong, exposure to a sort of dialogue in a place like Twitter has caused me to, to sort of open my mind and, and, and seek out perspectives that I might not have, found you know and, and definitely places like twitter it can be a double-edged sword i've been pretty lucky that the community of people i interact with on twitter uh, are mostly like i don't get a lot of people like just screaming mindlessly at me that they uh because i'm sort of focused on science and evidence the people who totally disagree with me disagree with me based on what they view as science and evidence and so we can have a reasonable discussion about what you know what studies are worthwhile and, and stuff as opposed to just you know I, I i also get people just asserting that i know nothing and that it's actually that you know they have their personal experience that such and such an approach changed their life and that's fine too i tune that stuff out but it's i i, I guess twitter has has really been useful for uh, exposing me to to perspectives that i didn't necessarily hold initially you mentioned the limits of breath. Um, what were some of the other physical limits of the human body that you discovered while writing your book? Yeah, so it, it is it is interesting when you start stop and sort of sit down and think. Well, what? Okay, uh, let's say I go for a run. I, let's say I step out the door and start running as hard as I can. Um, I, pretty soon, I'm going to slow down. What you know? What exactly is it? Like, what What are the things that are holding me back? And so, I I, I really tried to to sort of zero in on a, on a bunch of different possibilities. One of the one of the ones is the sort of general categories is muscle. At what point is it my muscle holding me back? And and we often think of things like lactic acid. And so some of the most fun I had was going back and trying to trace the history of lactic acid. How did we get this idea that when I when my legs are burning, it's lactic acid melting my muscles away? And and how did we uh, and and what's the current understanding of lactic acid? And I actually had a ton of fun because. The, the modern world makes it possible to really track down when you're talking when you're looking at like 19th century references pretty much everything is not everything but a lot of references are online now and with google translate you can read in all sorts of languages so i i was going through and following this trail of publications i read i probably spent a week reading papers dating going back to the, i think the oldest one was 1807 uh that was the first reference to lactic acid as a limit in uh exercise basically they they slaughtered some deer who had been hunted and compared them to deer that had been slaughtered uh in in a in a slaughterhouse and they found there was this substance in their muscles uh there was more of it in the hunted deer than in the the slaughterhouse deer and th uh, that when they sort of ran a bunch of contraction or, or, or experiments on it they eventually concluded this substance seemed exactly like the substance you could get from soured milk 
And so it turned out to be lactic. What the, you know, the, at that point, they didn't even know whether lactic acid really existed. There was, that was debated for another sort of 40 years. But it, that was the, the, this, this sort of lactic a- acid was isolated. And this is a Swedish paper in 1807. So I'm like sitting there typing in this sort of archaic <laughs> Swedish into Google Translate saying, what does this even mean? Oh, wait, hey, this, <laughs> they're talking about lactic acid. So I, I had a ton of fun pursuing that. The modern, I, I, I should say, just to, to sort of cap that off, the, the modern view of lactic acid is, is okay, first of all, there's no lactic acid in your body. There's lactate, which is an ion, and there's some other sort of metabolites that form in your muscle when you're exercising hard. These things don't directly affect your muscles necessarily, but they trigger, again, some some feedback to your brain, which you perceive as as discomfort. So your muscles are, are, are still working fine. It's just that when you have too much lactate and too many protons and, and, and some other metabolites, um, your brain gets an alarm signal, which you interpret as, uh, you know, your, your muscles kind of locking up and, and being unable to go. So muscle is another one. I also looked into stuff like hydration and heat, uh, and, which are big ones that are where it's like, I, I guess they're, they're also perfect examples of this idea that both hydration and heat are important. If you, if you run out of water or if you overheat, you'll be in big trouble and possibly even die. What what most of us feel as thirst or warmth is not. We slow down a lot way before we're actually in danger of 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 getting critically low on uh, fluids or critically hot. So we have this this warning signal that tries to slow us down long, but the you know the red the the, the orange light happens long before you hit the red light, um, and and that's that's sort of the in keeping with the overall theme of a lot of these limits. And um, it's really cool to hear you talk about this stuff. One of the things I thought about, though, as you told that story was a personal experience that I had when I was a teenager. And um, you talked about muscle, and I, I went out and did a bunch of um, a bunch of curls. And uh, and then I spent the next <laughs> three, four, five days where I could, couldn't really bend my arms. So what you're saying is that that's actually something that's happening in the brain? Or did I just rip up my muscles too much and they're damaged? Yeah, so that that's and you know I just we we used to have a twice a year we had a a push up and sit up test and and you know none of us ever trained for it and so um, you know the day after the sit up test none of the guys would be able to like laugh without agony because their stomach muscles were torn up so that's actually that's delayed onset muscle soreness and it's primarily caused by actual physical damage to your muscle fibers it, it, it's so it's it or at least the physical damage to the muscle fibers the little tears happen during exercise and then the repair process, uh, a, a bunch of uh, you know cells rush in to try and repair and cause a ton of inflammation. And in doing so, they, they the sort of bulldozers damage everything in the vicinity. And so you get, uh, that's that's where you get the soreness. Now, the in keeping with the theme of it's not all in your head, but part of it's in your head, what's really cool is, let's say you do a bunch of curls. The next day you're super sore. Then two weeks later, you do a bunch of curls again, you're going to be less sore next time. And that's something called the repeated bout effect. You know, you're, you, and, and it's easy. You, you might think that that's, well, I guess my muscles were just stronger. They're, they were repaired better. So they were ready for it. But here's the cool thing. If, if you, let's say you do a bunch of curls with your right arm and you're really sore the next day, two weeks later, you do a bunch of curls with your left arm, you'll be less sore than you were the first time. So it's not just that your muscles are stronger; it's also that your your central nervous system has been has sort of become familiar with this, and this, this and instead of they don't sound the alarm quite as 
severely, they say, oh, we've been through this before. It wasn't actually as serious as we thought, so let's not make it quite as painful as it was the last time. So that shows us that even the perception of pain after you've damaged your muscles is partly mediated by what your, what your brain or what your central nervous system is expecting. Is that part of the idea of muscle memory? Like, it, muscle- like not, when, not, when I say muscle memory, not the idea of like a repeated task, but like when somebody doesn't work out for a long time and they come back to the gym and they can lift relatively close to what they were lifting before. Yeah, so muscle memory is, is a term that has a bunch of different meanings and some of some of them are sort of folk meanings and some of them are there's some real physiology there so if if you have been doing weights for a long time uh there are changes that go on in your muscles you 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 grow more nuclei for your muscle cells and and those nuclei persist for years and years almost indefinitely as far as the, the studies show so then next time you go do some weights uh even if your muscle cells have shrunk because you haven't, not next time, let's say you, you take a year off and come back a year later, um, your your muscles are, even if you've you've lost your the, the initial uh, size of your muscles, your muscles have fundamentally changed from the workouts you did a year ago. And so you'll be able to regain strength much more quickly. This is one of the arguments for why four-year bans for, for doping in sports are maybe inadequate because if you're able to put on a ton of strength or muscle while doping, and then you you get you get clean, you've you fundamentally changed your body in a way that that actually will never evaporate. Um, but but there's a lot of different yeah, and I mean, and in terms of like so that mean that that helps you re- regain muscle quite quickly. But in terms of like, hey, you can you can lift more, even get with a given level of muscle, uh, if if you've done it before. Um, then I think there's there's a, there's a lot of things going on there, and one of them is just the knowledge that you're able to, and the the ability to sort of uh, fire the right signals from your brain to your muscles. You've learned to optimize those neuromuscular signals, uh, and so you can get more out of a given layer of muscle after you've been training. And it's the same in running. Like if you once you've run a five minute mile, even if you get out of shape, you're going to find it much easier to get close to that than if you've never been at that level before. It's all it's always easier to go back to somewhere you've been before. And that's partly, I think, psychological and partly physiological. I mean, that, leads, that actually leads me to my next question. In Endure, you talk about line breakers, like how people can train their minds to increase their endurance and performance levels. Um, what were some of the other things that you discovered that would help people to do that? Yeah, so I, it's interesting. I, I mean, I talked about uh, motivational self-talk. Um, there's some other things, and I, I mentioned briefly stuff like electric brain stimulation, which the research is pretty good about uh, on, and it suggests that it really works. There's a Silicon Valley startup company called Halo Neuroscience that sells these like noise-canceling headphones with spikes in the in the strap that goes across the, the head that deliver electricity to your head during your warm-up, and it, you know, supposedly enhance your workout. That that the, some of that stuff. It's in. Let me just put it this way. I. I'm not sure it works in its commercial form, but if it does, I'm not sure that's what I would recommend. Uh, like I'm not. To me, it, there's something like it's. It's kind of like saying oh, I really want to break three hours for a marathon. So next year I'm going to run a 25 mile marathon instead of a 26 mile marathon. It's like, oh well, have have you actually have you actually accomplished what you've we're hoping to accomplish in doing that. Um, leaving aside the sort of also the discomfort with, you know, running electricity through your brain. So 
there's some things that are interesting in theory and that are being used by professional athletes, but I'm I'm a little bit hesitant about. Um, another sort of angle or or area of research that I think is is growing now and and is interesting is is things like mindfulness. There's some really interesting brain imaging research showing how eight weeks of mindfulness training can make an ordinary brain look a lot more like the brain of an elite performer, like a, an elite athlete or a Navy SEAL or someone like that in terms of ability to deal with stressful situations and continue per, to perform well. And so mindfulness, you know, again, just echoing back to something we were talking about earlier, the difference between knowing something and doing something. I'm like the classic example of uh, that there's probably like 100 million of us uh, around the world these days who who are convinced that mindfulness is really interesting and useful, who know what it is, who know how to do it, but aren't actually doing it. And so it's one of those things where um, I, I suspect it's useful and there's actually some pretty interesting research uh, backing that claim up. I'm not doing it in any systematic way and I, I think I'm not alone. I think there's a lot of people who are like, yeah, that mindfulness stuff sounds great. I'm going to try it next week. Um, but I, I would I, I would encourage people to, you know, do as I say, not as I do, if, if, if you're interested in that, and, and actually take the plunge, whether it's by getting one of the mindfulness apps or by signing up for an eight-week course or something like that. One of the things that I notice about you is that you do, you have done a lot of research around these things. I mean, you said you spent 10 years in your book. You talk about referencing, um, going back and looking at uh, referenced articles. What's your process for determining what you're going to write next, and and what is your process for going back and researching and writing writing that article yeah so w with my book i had a question i wanted to ask and then i you know beat the bushes to find as much information and talk to as many people on it as i could when i'm writing articles it's actually sort of the opposite it's the other way around um instead uh, instead of starting with a question i often start but I, I actually just start by looking through scientific journals to find or on twitter to, to find uh, new studies. And the reason for that is that let's say you start, let's say you're, you're wondering like, uh, how many miles a week do I need to run to be healthy? Or, or like wh what, what, how much rest should I take between reps or something like that? Uh, of, a, of when I'm in the weight room, there's a lot of interesting questions and they're useful questions. And the truth is that the chances that there's a specific study that properly answers that question in a valid way is very low. So when you start with that question, the, the, you know, the answer that I end up giving in an article tends to be, well, we're not really sure. There's a little bit of evidence suggesting this, but some other evidence suggesting that. And, you know, often it's just very unsatisfying. And so well, I, I like kind of doing it the other way around. And so I literally, there's, you know, maybe half a dozen scientific journals that I'll uh, scan the contents of on a weekly basis to kind of see what's happening in the world of science. Because then it may not be the a question that I was thinking of asking, but it's a question with an answer or I can say, hey, someone thought of this question and they thought it was worth, uh, you, you know, um, looking into and doing a study about and they have an answer. It may not be the final definitive answer that applies to anyone, but they have some useful information on it. So that way I can make sure that the articles I write actually, you know, there, there is a relevant study that tries to answer that question because I started with that study and that's why I'm writing about it. So, so it's. It, it, it's kind of you, you can make good arguments for both approaches. Do you start with a question or do you start with the answer? Uh, and and certainly with with my book, I started with the question. But uh, for a lot of my articles, I, I, starting with the answer, I think uh, ends up being more satisfying because 
it's always nice to get to the end of the article and, and feel like you learned something rather than just uh, have someone say, well, we don't really know. So, you know, use common sense and, you know, don't forget to warm up. The other thing that comes up, as you said that, is that you're also trying to go to the best sources of information possible, right? Like when you're looking for through these, at least that's my interpretation. When you're looking through these scientific journals, you're not like, hanging out at like a runner's club that meets on Saturdays <laughs> like, like you're, you're like sort of looking at the edges of of the areas that you're interested in and gathering information that might be useful and, and that's a much shorter process than sort of like asking a question where where you're trying to explore a subject <laughs> over a series of years and 300 400 pages yeah, so that you know, that's something you can only do so many times. Then, and and so, um, in a sense, both you know, both both approaches are interesting and both are good. You just have to understand how they're different. And so, it's one thing to ask a sort of open-ended question and spend a lot of time trying to answer it when you're going to do it over the course of years and in the context of a book. Uh, as as a as a as a journalist who also you know has to pay my rent and and so on. Um, I have to write a bunch of shorter articles, and that process is much less satisfying when you're doing it on in the context of I have two days to write this article and I and I need to keep it to you know 800 words or something like that. Then, if you get an open-ended answer from someone or an unclear answer or there's ambiguity, then it's instead of be, being able to spend a few years fleshing out that answer and then explaining it clearly, you just end up with an article that basically says nothing. So that's why you know like as a as a journalist, I, I get. Uh, you know, a, a sort of steady fire hose of, of press releases from uh, publicity people, from from marketing people saying, hey, you know, I'd love to connect you with so-and-so who owns this gym, uh, you know, in, in such and such a place. He's an amazing resource on fitness. He can answer all your questions. And it's like, I bet that, I, I, that guy may well be an amazing resource, an amazing guy who does amazing stuff for his or her clients. Um, but I don't just want someone's opinion on on what they do because I, I could call ten different people and get ten different opinions and and I don't really know which one to to to, uh, to believe or not. So that's why I'm I'm sort of like my shtick is I'm going to go to a peer reviewed journal and like you said I'm, I'm trying to go to what I see as the best source of information although or or at least a certain type of information that that it doesn't tell you tell us everything we need to know and there's there's a lot of flaws in in peer reviewed studies and I've become a lot more tuned into the difference between really good studies and more mediocre studies uh, and, and studies that 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 I should ignore because they're not well designed or they're 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 biased or flawed or whatever but um, but it, it's 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 still different from just you know calling up Joe trainer and saying hey you know how, what's your advice that that advice is useful for people but it's not what I'm trying to provide I, I think it's a re really great point and the reason why I asked the question is because for people who are listening to this like I think there's applications to sort of the broader way that we approach life and try to research and optimize and uh, I found something very similar with uh, with this podcast when I first started it we would sort of interview anybody who we thought was interesting but as time goes on it's a lot of academics researchers and authors <laughs> well it's interesting you, you know that's, that's a great parallel and and I think you could you could think of a podcast in terms of you know what are the big questions that people want to know about let's try to answer them, but then you might get an imperfect fit or imperfect match between the question you're trying to answer and the person and the and the expert you manage to find. Whereas if you find someone who's an expert in something and just say let's talk about what you know about, uh, 
then I think you, you you're likely to get higher quality of information. Um, you know, and look, I, like I have opinions on a lot of things, but <laughs> really, if you ask me about endurance, I really have well informed opinions. If you ask me about just about anything else in the world, I, I'm just some dude who has opinions like like anyone else. So if you were to ask me like, you know, uh, advice on advancing in business or whatever. Uh, you, you're not getting top quality information. So, you, you know, the, it's, it's, it's good. In other words, is what I'm saying that we've, we've stuck to the topic of pushing limits and, and endurance and things like that. Awesome, Alex. Um, any last insights, words of wisdom uh, for the listeners around fitness, endurance, human performance, anything that you do feel like that you have <laughs> expertise around? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, look, I think we've, we've covered uh, the, the, the stuff that I know. The, the one thing I'll say as a sort of general life lesson for, for, from my perspective as a journalist is that, uh, you know, I made that I made this big switch from physics to journalism in the in my late 20s. And, and you know, the, the advice to 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 sort of follow your passion or whatever is obviously well well-trodden and, and pretty cliched, but I will say finding something that I was really interested in, uh, as I think as a journalist has made me a much better journalist because I, I really care about finding out, uh, about talking to people and finding out better answers and things like that. So, uh, you know, f whether it's in your personal or professional life, if, if you're able to, and, and fitness, if, if fitness is a great example, finding the things that you're interested in is going to make your task much more easy. So it's like, it's not what's the best workout because the best workout for, for one person is not necessarily the best workout as someone else. Finding the thing that you look forward to getting out of bed and doing is going to be the best workout for you. And I think that's a metaphor that can be applied uh, much more broadly across life. Alex, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. It's been a pleasure. And if you're listening to this, you want to learn more about Alex, his book Endure, um, all the different things that he does, we're going to post a link on the Craft Charisma website and within the description of this podcast so that you can find out about him more easily. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. Thanks, Chris. This was a lot of fun. It's Dating Coach Chris Thona here. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. And we absolutely love making this podcast. We make this podcast for you. So if there's somebody that you want on the show, let me know. I will yell, scream, stand in front of their house, do everything I do to get them on the show for you. Also, don't hesitate to follow the podcast on SoundCloud and iTunes and Stitcher. You can also give us a shout out through social media, Facebook, Twitter, share it with your friends. And lastly, Go to the Craft Christmas website and create an account. There you can talk about the podcast and communicate with me directly. So thank you again for taking time to listen. You will hear again from me soon.